Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to come together in unity, to dwell together in unity. The opening statement of the 133rd Psalm encourages us to appreciate the unity that's available through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we come together today, though some number of separate individuals, though united in that one blessed body purchased with the blood of Christ, Ephesians 4, verse number 4. It's so good that we are able to come together on a glorious Lord's Day morning, this second Sunday in June 2007, and in so doing, to investigate and look again into the precious words of God, that very word that's able to save, being engrafted, our precious soul, James 1, verse number 18. So, so being said in that fashion, in that way, might we appreciate a lesson this morning that in fact touches on a subject that it's not always easy to fully grasp. But nonetheless, God's Word presents it to you and me, the providence of God. Isn't it interesting that there are some specific subjects that are straightforwardly taught to you and me in the Bible, but due to the fact that you and I are limited, we are finite, we are not infinite as God is, we are not always as easily able to wrap our mind around and fully appreciate the far-reaching consequences of what the Scriptures teach to us. I'm persuaded that the providence of God is, in fact, in that very category. Would you think with me of some opening comments that lead us into a discussion of the subject of the providence of God? We might well investigate what is meant by this idea. If one consults a mere dictionary such as Webster's, and consults there the definition of the word providence, it is simply the care or benevolent guidance of God. Perhaps in a more careful fashion, though, a Bible dictionary that we happen to have at the house made note of the following definition for providence. The continuous activity of God in which, in His creation by which He preserves and governs. Perhaps an opening statement might be this. You and I may on occasion have encountered some who are convinced that God created this world, the universe, and all things therein, but following His creation, He removed Himself to some distant point and He basically serves today as only a spectator. He does not involve Himself in His creation. He allows it to take the natural course in which it would ordinarily take without His aid. As you can see, the word providence directly opposes that thought. Again, that latter definition we noted, the continuous activity of God, the continuous activity of God in His creation by which He preserves it and governs it. Does God have a daily operation in the affairs of the earth? The way that kingdoms and countries and states operate in the affairs in which they undergo themselves? More personally, what about your life and mine? Does He on a daily basis interact in such a fashion to bring about His will in the lives of those with whom we may come in contact? That's a rather deep question, admittedly. This morning I would ask that you and I look powerfully into an episode found within the heart of the Old Testament and see the very explicit answer to these questions that we've raised. I've chosen to list for you a few passages at the outset that illustrates God's right to providence. 
first in First Chronicles 29.11. It is expressly noted there by David himself that God rules over all, and certainly then he would have the right to impress his will upon all over which he rules and reigns. In Psalm 47, verse 7, he's expressly called the king of all that is in the earth. That means that whether it be nations, states, local communities, individuals, the Lord reigns over all of them and has the right to impress His will therein. What's more, Daniel expressly noted in Daniel 4.17 that it is God that rules in the kingdoms of men and giveth it to whomsoever He will. He sets up monarchs and removes them at His will's end. All of these texts help us understand that our God is sovereign. He has absolute power and control, and He is able to do by right that which is in accordance to His will. One final text that's worthy of our mention in the 113th Psalm has to do with personal life. Let us read verses 5 through 9 of that chapter, the 113th Psalm. Listen to the statement, as even the nature of the life of people is expressly under control of God. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high? Who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house, and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise you, the Lord." Isn't it amazing that God touches the raising up of the needy and the poor as well as providing the children to the lady who in former times was barren? That is the working of the God of heaven in the affairs of nations as well as in the affairs of individuals, not unlike you and me. But having made note of the Scripture statement of God's right to providence, perhaps there is no better example in all the Word of God than the book of Esther. And thus, to that 10-chapter book in the Old Testament, I would ask that you turn with me as we investigate a remarkable example of the providence of God. As we move through the story of the book of Esther, we shall come at last to a dramatic and grand conclusion. But first, we must rehearse the story so that the details contained therein will provide the evidence we need for the conclusion we shall reach. The time was about 473 B.C. On this occasion, the children of Israel had already gone into captivity to Babylon, but they had already been released by the gracious goodness and blessing of the Persian king named Cyrus. In Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, that king Cyrus gave a decree that all the Jews who wanted to could leave Babylon and come back to the land of Palestine and therein to rebuild Jerusalem, if you will, and to dwell in that holy land yet one more time. Many of the Jews chose to take Cyrus up on that offer. Many of them did not. As we come to the book of Esther, we notice that we encounter some Jews who were still living in the Persian capital. That is, they had not chosen to go back to their homeland of Jerusalem. And oh, what a dramatic example they were of those who nonetheless were faithful to God. Consider with me as chapter 1 opens. And might we note at the very outset that if we thought that the captivity in Egypt back in the book of Exodus was a tremendous turmoil to the people of Israel, that was nothing compared to what we'll see in this book. 
If we thought the Babylonian captivity was an oppressive time of affliction and one in which the people were on the brink of annihilation, that was nothing compared to what we'll see in this book. God's people without question faced the greatest crisis that they ever in Old Testament days faced in the book of Esther. Let us investigate how God dealt with that crisis and showed in a dramatic fashion His overruling providence. Chapter number 1. We begin to see in the opening saga of the book of Esther that the Persian king at this time was a man named Ahasuerus. Some pronounce his name Ahasuerus. I'll attempt to stick to Ahasuerus. As this Persian monarch reigned on his throne, he reigned over a strong and dramatically large empire. Verse number 1 and 2 indicates it stretched from Ethiopia in the west all the way to India in the east, and he ruled over all of it. 127 provinces. Needless to say, this man, Ahasuerus, was the most powerful man on earth at the time. As he reigned over this large empire, he also was wealthy. The various matters of the empire passed through the coffers of the, of the capital, and he was a very wealthy man. As verses 3 and following tell us, he proceeded to throw a feast, a time of celebration, and it lasted six months. Can you imagine a party that lasted 180 days, yet a Ahasuerus threw one that large? The princes from all over the empire were invited to come and to celebrate with him during the feast. And at the close of it, for another seven days, he invited those of the capital city to continually celebrate for another week. It was during that seven-day period that he, being drunken, as well as many of those present, no doubt also, that he asked and even demanded that his queen Vashti come before him and to display her beauty to those therein gathered. Vashti understood the lowering of her integrity that would be demanded to accomplish such, and she refused to come. Understandably, from his point of view at least, he quickly removed her as queen and soon began search for her replacement. In chapter number 2, we quickly encounter a man named Mordecai. He was a Jew who was living in Shushan, the capital city there. Interestingly enough, he was a devout Jew. He appreciated the power of the God of heaven, the reality of the law that God gave through Moses to the people, so much so that he had taken upon himself the care of his first cousin. Her name was Esther. We well remember that her parents had died, and Mordecai had taken upon himself the care of her, she was a beautiful lady, so much so that she was entered as a candidate to be the next queen to replace Vashti. When King Ahasuerus saw her, he fell in love with her. He was impressed with her beauty and her demeanor, and he soon selected her among all the women of the empire to be his next queen. She was quickly installed as queen, and as chapter 2 closes, we learn that this man whom we earlier had seen, Mordecai, he became aware of a conspiracy plot against Ahasuerus. He made known of that plot to Esther, who certified it in Mordecai's name. This plot, if carried out, would have meant the death of Ahasuerus. Those two conspirators were named, as such, there in the chapter, Tirish and Bigthan. But we might well take note that it was certified, the matter, in the name of Mordecai. As the next chapter opens we begin to notice that there's another character in this book, 
a very wicked man named Haman. Haman was one whom King Ahasuerus had elevated to a very high position in the land, so much so that the people were told in order to bow before him and pay him reverence as though he were a god. Mordecai refused to do such. Every time that Haman appeared, Mordecai would remain on his feet. He did not bow before him. That infuriated Haman. So much so that in verse 3 of chapter 6, he intended to destroy all of the Jews. Not just, ha- not just Mordecai, but every one of them. In his cleverness and in his deception and in his trickery, he was able to get the king to sign a decree such that all of the Jews would be destroyed, every one of them, on the 13th day of the 12th month. Let us pause for a moment and notice the dramatic nature of what has been signed. Once a Persian law was signed by the king and it has his official seal of approval, it could not be undone. It could not be in any sense repealed. This law had to be carried forth. And yet in that law, this man named Haman had deceived the king in such a way that this law was signed and on that day every Jew would be destroyed. Notice that if that had happened... How would Christ have come into the world? How would the plan of God to save man been able to come to be? There would have been no descendant of Abraham left alive. There would have been no person able to fulfill the commandments of God to that ancient nation that through his seed, the Savior of the world would come. With this decree that the king had signed, the Hebrew nation was on the brink of of, of annihilation, the brink of extermination. What would happen? We quickly turn the page and notice that God in His amazing capabilities answer this question in this fashion. As chapter number 4 opens, we notice that once Mordecai became aware of this plot and the law that had been signed, he brought word of it to Esther. She in turn began to appreciate the thoroughness and terribleness thereof. And it was on that very occasion that the words that were read in our hearing this morning were also noted to her. Verse 14, Mordecai said to Esther, Who knoweth but what thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this? At that point, Esther knew that she had to do something in an attempt to save her people. As chapter 5 opens, she proceeded at once to go in into the king. That was a risky proposition. For it was the law in that day and time that unless Ahasuerus asked for you to come, You were under threat of death. If he did not receive you graciously, he could at once have you killed because you came uninvited. Esther, though she had not been invited, went in before the king. Thankfully, he did dip the scepter to her and he asked her what she desired. She desired that he, as well as Haman, would come into a feast later that day. A banquet, if you will. They graciously agreed to come. And on that occasion... The king knew that there was something else behind Esther's request. And so at that banquet, he again said, Esther, Esther, what wilt thou? What is thy petition? I will give it unto thee, though it be unto half my kingdom. On the occasion of the second request, notice how the things proceeded at once into the character of the saving of God's people. On the occasion here, after risking her life, We might again notice that on this occasion of the banquet, 
Esther invited them to come to a second banquet, another one, if you will. This was a bit puzzling to the king. He knew there was something more behind Esther's request than just wanting them to keep coming to other banquets. However, he nonetheless agreed, and again, Haman was invited. Might we notice, Haman left this meeting with great joy in his heart. We learned that Haman was a man who lacked influence, he lacked popularity, he liked to be in positions where others looked up to him, and here he had it. Of all the people in the kingdom, the only two men present at the feast Esther had in mind was the king and him. He loved every minute of it. He left that particular place with excitement and with joy. In fact, he went home and spoke to his wife, and she encouraged him to know the goodness that he that was his and the blessing that had come upon him. But there was something that tarnished his ideas. On the way to his house, he met Mordecai, and Mordecai did not bow before him. It so angered him and infuriated him that Zeresh's wife, seeing that in his face and in his demeanor, told him, why don't you go to the king given your good stance with him, and petition him to kill Mordecai or to allow you to arrange for that to occur. Haman liked that idea. And come morning, that's exactly what he did. But over the course of the night, he had a gallows constructed that stood 75 feet tall, and on that he intended Mordecai to be killed. That very night, however, the king had a sleepless night. He tossed and turned apparently, And during the course of that, he asked the chronicles of the kingdom to be brought to him and to be read in his hearing. Among that which was read was the very incident mentioned in chapter 2. The goodness and loyalty that Mordecai had shown in making known the plot, the conspiracy that would have led to his death. When the king heard that read, he said, What honor hath been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? And the servant said, Nothing, my lord. At that point, the king, Ahasuerus, recognized that in the the courtyard waiting was Haman, for Haman again had come and was going to get him to give approval to kill Mordecai. Isn't it interesting that on that very occasion the king said, To Haman, what should be done for the one whom the king delighteth to honor? Mordecai, or rather Haman, felt sure that the king was talking about him. Who else, in his mind, would the king choose to honor besides me? And thus he said what the king ought to do is to robe the man in the finest royal apparel, put him on the king's horse, and have one of the noblest of princes lead him through the city so that all could bestow honor upon him. As a result of that statement, the king said, let it be done. Haman, you go and bestow the very honors you've just described on Mordecai. At once, Mordecai was the most insulted man, it would seem. After all, here was the man he hated, and yet he was the very one chosen by the king to lead him through the city and bestow honor on Mordecai. Following that event, Haman went to his house insulted, somewhat dejected, and as he spoke with his wife, she learned that this man Mordecai was a Jew, and even she said to her husband, The plan thou hast in mind will not succeed, for he is a Jew. Even she understood the history of how God protects his people. In the very next chapter, 
We then learned that the time had come for the next feast that Esther had prepared for Haman as well as the king. When they came, the king said one more time, Esther, what is thy petition? She at that point began to say that my people are under threat. We will be put to death. As such, the king said, Who will do this unto thee? And she pointed the finger at Haman. That wicked Haman has, as our adversary, devised a plot whereby not only myself, but all my people will be slain. The king was infuriated. He knew that he had been duped into signing that decree earlier. At that point, the king was angry and Haman perceived it. He attempted to beg the queen for her favor and graciousness to again win favor with the king, but it failed. And in fact, once he learned of that plot, he had Haman hanged on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. However, there was still a law in place. It could not be repealed. God's people were to be killed. Esther went one more time in to the king. And she begged favor to speak with him. And one more time she dipped the scepter to him. As we appreciate those thoughts, notice that another plan was put in place. God's people were given the authority to defend themselves on that day and to kill those who had tried to kill them. And thus, when that thirteenth day of the twelfth month came, they were able to be preserved and protected. It's no wonder this is one of the favorite books of the Orthodox Jews. For they see in this book their preservation in their deepest time of trial, the closest time of their extermination. But isn't it a fascinating thought? In looking at all of these matters and seeing what we've seen, God's people were saved. They were preserved and protected through the character of the influence of Esther and Mordecai. But now back to the questions with which we began the whole lesson today. It's at this point that we might note this comment. This is one of only two books in all the Old Testament where the name of God is not found. The name of God is not found in the book of Esther. But yet, do we see His handiwork therein? Is His providence seen so carefully and so easily? Oh, yes, it is. For might we note the following set of questions. Did you notice in this story that we just revealed a whole set of things that might be chalked up to coincidence? Let us ask if it would be possible to see, though, something else besides happenstance and coincidence. Looking at these with me, when Vashti was set aside as queen and Esther was selected as replacement, was that coincidental? Or could that have been because in light of the statement that Mordecai made, perhaps thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this? Or if, or if that isn't powerful enough, what about the fact that it was Mordecai who just happened to discover the conspiracy plot against the king and the fact that that conspiracy was certified in Mordecai's name? Had it been certified in Esther's name, it would have done no good. Had it been certified in anyone else's name, then on that night the king read of it, it would not have had the same impact. Was that coincidental? I don't think so. Or consider a third one. On that occasion, when the king extended favor to Esther, remember that anyone who came uninvited could be killed. On two different occasions, the king dipped the scepter to her and extended favor as she came to him uninvited. Was all of that coincidental? 
Or consider another question. How could it be that the king just happened to have a restless and sleepless night on the very night before Haman was coming to see him? And on that very same night that he was restless, how could it be that he asked to have the Chronicles of the Kingdom read? And as those were read, it just happened to be the place where the labors of Mordecai and his loyalty were noted. All of that coincidental seems a, num- a large number of coincidences working in unison, if that be the case, doesn't it? But the plot de- deepens the next morning. Remember that Haman came and it happened to be he who was standing in the courtyard. It was he who the king saw and asked what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Pause with me to note this. If Haman had come perhaps ten minutes earlier... He would have arrived before those chronicles about Mordecai had been read and the very idea that Haman had in mind, that of killing Mordecai, could have been done with the king's pleasure. No problem. It just happened to be that the chronicles were read before Haman came. All of that coincidental. Consider another one. Haman that very same night had had the gallows prepared. Coincidental? The very next day they would be used, but not on the person for whom they were originally intended. Or yet another one. What about the king's second extension of favor to Esther? Remarkable, isn't it, to notice that all of these details were not coincidences. Here is a clear statement of the providential character of the God of heaven, working in the life of Esther, Mordecai, even the other affairs of the timing of the coming of Haman, so that God's people would be preserved, secured, and protected, and that His plan throughout the ages could come to fruition. The providential character of God, absolutely, it's real. You and I today, having noted that though, are in positions where again we are finite, We are not able to read the future. We do not know what the future may hold and bring, but this much we do know. God on a daily basis works in the affairs of nations to bring about His will. But not only nations, let us make it personal. He, as we've seen in the life of Esther, brought her into the kingdom for such a time as this. God is able to work in my life and yours in such a way by way of our associations, the activities in which we participate, to impact and bring about His will in reaching, contacting, interposing His ideas upon others. As deep a thought as that is, the Scriptures portray it over and over again, teaching us that we must never restrict or limit God, but understand that in His providence through us, His will is accomplished. In Romans 8 verse 28, a text found in the heart of the Roman letter Paul said, For we understand or we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. The understanding nature of the providential character of God. He does govern and He does preserve, working in my life and yours daily. He is not sitting at a distance as a mere spectator over His creation. If that were true, prayer would be useless. We pray because we understand there's a God in heaven who listens and has promised to respond to the prayers of those that are His faithful. If He just sat at a distance and allowed things to take the natural course as if He weren't here, what purpose would there be in prayer? God does act. 
He does work. He does answer. And He does hear. And He does bring about His will in the lives of those upon this land. To characterize those thoughts then today, perhaps in summary, we can make some of these comments. So many of the things to which you and I may consider to be happenstance or coincidence, perhaps they're more than that. Maybe they are the operation of God in the ability of bringing about His will. Many times throughout history, we have noted that the children of Israel were on the brink of annihilation here, but God saved them through the actions of Mordecai and Esther. And in addition, later, as we come closer to the time of Christ, He preserved His own blessed Son from the killing slaughter of Herod in Matthew 2. Later, He would also preserve Him from being slaughtered in John chapter 8. All the while, God's providence is at work. Does it work in my life and yours? Absolutely. Today, may we be thankful for God's providence. May we appreciate that in His infinite and great way, He is able to bring about that which is for our good, though we may not at the time always see it, and though we may not at the time appreciate it. But maybe in hindsight we will. Have you and I been in situations where a decade later we can look back on a time or a circumstance and be thankful that it turned out the way it did rather than the way we thought it ought to then? Maybe that's the working of God and His providence in my life and yours. We realize that the gospel is the means of salvation. In order to have His providence in your favor, you need to be members of His body. We each do, and faithful members at that. Are you thus today a member of the body of Christ, faithfully giving your life in service to His cause? If you have never obeyed the gospel, realize that the Son of God came that you might have life and have it more abundantly, John 10, verse 10. He came to save you from the sins that would ultimately damn your soul and from which you never on your own could have forgiveness. You could be made righteous in Him, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as the Savior of your life, as the Savior of mankind, as the Son of God. Be baptized for the remission of sins. Upon so doing, He will add you to the body, to the church, and you can then enjoy faithful fellowship with Him. If you have known that fellowship but have not been faithful to it, today you need to come back to your first love. Make it known to others if those sins have been of a public nature that you desire to again have fellowship with God. Come back to Him. We'd be honored to pray on your behalf for you and with you. If we could do either of those things today... It'd be our joy to aid you, and it would be also a happy occasion for the inhabitants of heaven. If you need to come today in a public way, Brother Harold has chosen a hymn of encouragement, a hymn of invitation. Will you not come and let that be known now while together we stand and while we sing?